Well, I learned something uh, new recently about plants. Do we have any plant people in the room? Anyone with like a green thumb? A few of you, a few of you. I don't have much of a green thumb. I don't really like taking care of plants, but I love plants. I like to have them. I like to look at them. And recently I learned something new about plants. I learned that plants can be dead, but still be green. Did you know that? It's true. A little while ago, uh, Pastor Keith was in my office, and he noticed this little succulent that I had in my windowsill. It was kind of a cool, unique-looking little succulent. And so he went over to take a look at it. And as he picked it up, I said to him, you know, that is my like, favorite plant. I love that plant uh, because I literally never water it. <laughs> I don't even remember the last time I watered it, but somehow it just never dies. It's like the lowest maintenance plant I've ever had. And Pastor Keith was standing there just looking at the plant. He looked it over and then he looked at me and he said, Tamil, I'm pretty sure this plant is dead. It's just green and dead. And so I picked up the plant and I took a closer look at it and sure enough, the plant was dead. All those times that I had sat at my desk and gazed upon this beautiful little succulent were a lie. I thought it was healthy, I thought I was doing okay because it looked good. On the outside it looked good from a distance. But at some point in time, I don't even know when, I wasn't attentive enough to call the time of death. <laughs> at some point in time, it withered away on the inside until it was just a lifeless green corpse <laughs> nestled into a clump of dirt. Does anyone have some green corpses nestled into dirt in their homes and their windowsills? And it wasn't until I had that conversation with Keith that it occurred to me that my philosophy of plant care didn't make any sense. Because all living things need water to stay alive. All living things need water to grow and to flourish. There's no bypassing that. There's no way around it. If you do not water a plant, no matter how hardy it is, no matter how, many resili uh, how resilient it is, no matter how many people tell you that you can't kill a succulent, eventually it will wither away and die. It was silly of me to believe that I could keep this plant alive without ever taking the time to give it the one thing it needs to sustain its life. But as silly as it may have been for me to believe that there was any hope at all of keeping this plant alive without water, the truth is we are all kind of prone to doing something similar with our own souls. How much time and attention have you been putting into taking care of your soul lately? How much energy have you been giving to tending to the deepest part of yourself, to the you beneath the surface, to the part of you that lies behind everything you do and say and think and feel? We live in a culture that is extremely concerned with how things look on the outside. 
We live in a culture where we all work really hard to make sure it looks like we've got it all together. To make sure it looks like we've got it all together in our Instagram posts, right, and on our Facebook walls and on whatever social media app it is that Gen Z is using these days. We live in a culture where we put a lot of energy into making it seem like we have the perfect family and like we're thriving in our careers and like we're successful and important and like we're doing all of the right things. But we also live in a culture that starves and depletes our souls. We live in a culture where it's normal to run on fumes, where busyness is seen as a status symbol where we fill every free moment that we have uh, staring at screens and scrolling through social media. We live in a culture where we're constantly exposed uh, to news feeds that are filled with tragedy and trauma, where we turn to coping mechanisms that numb our pain and might, might make us feel better in the moment that corrode our well-being. We live in a world where we're more connected than we've ever been digitally, but we're more disconnected and divided than we've ever been at that deeper, more personal level. In his book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster says this. He says, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. There's something about that that rings true, isn't there? And you know when that was written? 1978. 1978, dial-up internet wasn't even invented then. Now, kids, if you dial up internet, you can ask your parents about it later, okay? That was uh, a thing that we used to have where it was connected with the phone lines and the phones used to be, like, connected to the wall in your house. Just ask, yeah, check, ask your parents and give clarity. But how much more has our culture shifted towards superficiality and instant gratification 40 years later? In the 1700s, the Wesleyan church used to greet each other with, uh, with this expression. When they ran into, ran into each other, they would say, how goes it with your soul? How goes it with your soul? It's a question that warrants a response much deeper than our typical, typical greeting of how's it going, right? Before we dig into our passage this morning, I want you to think about how you would answer that question right now. How goes it with your soul? How are you actually doing beneath the surface? And how might Jesus be inviting you to come to him for the rest and the restoration that you need? This morning, we're actually going to look at two passages. We're going to look at two passages from the book of John in which Jesus invites people to come to him and to receive living water. Water is an image that is used often throughout scripture to describe the life and the abundance and the restoration that come from God. And it's an image that's still really meaningful for us today. 
because we know uh, what it means to be thirsty, we know how critical water is for our survival and our well-being, and we know how critical water is for the survival and well-being of our succulents. And so we're going to look at these stories where Jesus offers people living water, and then we're going to talk about what it would have meant to the people who were listening to Jesus in person at that time, and then we're going to look at what it means for us today as people who are seeking to live the lives that Jesus invites us into. So the first passage we're going to look at is found in John chapter 4. If you have your Bible with you, you can open it up to John chapter 4. Otherwise, the verses are going to pop up on the screen there. And we're going to start at verse 1. So it says this. And this is one of those passages that's pretty familiar. But as we read through it this morning, I just want to invite you to just let God speak to you through it in a new way. To just ask God uh, what he wants to say to you as we dig into this passage uniquely today. So verse 1, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, geographically, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. Okay, it was the most direct route from Judea to Galilee, but many Jews would go out of their way to avoid passing through Samaria at the time because there was this long-standing hostility that existed in this culture between Jews and Samaritans. It might have been unsafe for Jewish people to travel through Samaria, and it certainly would have been uncomfortable. Jewish people saw Samaritans as being less than human. They saw them as being unclean, and they certainly avoided interacting with them at all costs. So geographically, there were other routes that Jesus could have taken to get to Galilee. But the text tells us that he had to go through Samaria. So there's something bigger than geography that made made this trip essential for Jesus. This was a, a trip that God was calling him to take. In verse 5, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat warily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, in this culture, the women from a community would usually go to the well together to get water early in the morning so that they could avoid the heat of uh, the sun in the middle of the day. And the fact that this woman is going to the well alone at noon tells us that something's going on, right? She's avoiding people. She's getting her water when she knows that she will be the least likely to run into other people from her community. Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, by the standards of this culture... Everything about this situation is wrong. Jesus is Jewish. Jewish people don't talk to Samaritans. Jesus is a man. 
In this culture, it would have been considered inappropriate for a man to speak to a woman when they were alone like this. Jesus asked this woman for a drink from her bucket, which would have been considered unclean by Jewish law. Jesus ignores every social boundary that exists in this culture, in this conversation that he's having with this woman. Verse 10, Jesus replied, if only you knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you a drink of living water. And living water was the term uh, that was used at this time to describe water that was moving uh, rather than stagnant. So like a stream or like a river um, or a spring. Verse 11, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. So Jesus has piqued her interest, right? And she may not know exactly what he's talking about, but if he's got access to some sort of water that will mean that he doesn't need to, she doesn't need to keep going to this well in the middle of the day under the heat of the scorching sun, she wants it. And then Jesus does something that seems very strange. This woman has just expressed interest in what Jesus is offering her, and he changes the subject. Verse 16, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with. Now, you certainly spoke the truth. So Jesus touches the sore spot. He names the source of this woman's shame, the reason she's hiding from everyone else. We don't know uh, why she's had five husbands. The text doesn't tell us whether some of them had died, which in this culture might have actually been even seen as God's judgment. It doesn't tell us if they'd all left her, which would have had all kinds of shame attached to it. But regardless, Jesus sees beneath the surface. He sees the brokenness that's causing the thirst in this woman's soul. And he's not willing to pretend that everything's bright and shiny. He wants this woman to understand that the living water that he's offering to her brings healing and freedom to those deep, dark corners of her life that she wished that no one knew about. And the conversation continues. The woman changes the topic uh, to an issue of theological debate around worship. We're all pretty good at changing the subject when things get a little bit too vulnerable, right? We've all been there before. And what better to talk about than theological debate in those moments? And then eventually, Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah, 
And she runs back to her village and she says to everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Think about that. This woman who'd been hiding, who'd been staying away from other people, runs back to her community and she tells everybody about this interaction that she had with Jesus. Through this encounter, she has gotten a taste of living water. And already we see signs that she's been set free. She's free of shame. She has new life bubbling up within her. And then through her testimony, all kinds of people from her community actually come to Jesus and they experience his living water too. The next passage we're going to look at is John chapter 7. So we're going to look at verses 37 to 39, but before we read the passage, I'm going to give you a little bit of the context. So at this point in the book of John in chapter 7, Jesus and his disciples are at the festival of booths, or the the festival as tabernacles, as, uh, as it was sometimes called. And the festival of booths was a week-long festival where people would travel to Jerusalem and they would, send, uh, would set up tents on roofs and on courtyards and in uh, town squares. And it was a festival that ultimately commemorated God's gracious provision and his generosity from a few different angles. It celebrated the crops of fruit and the grain that had been harvested in the fall and the rain that God had provided that allowed those crops to grow. It commemorated uh, God's provision of water in the wilderness after Israel was uh, liberated from slavery in Egypt. So there was that historical piece of their story that it kind of drew them back to. And it celebrated the gift of what they referred to as the well of Torah, of uh, God's revelation that was given to his people. So water was one of the dominant images connected with the celebration. And as part of this festival, there was a water ceremony that took place every day. So a procession uh, that would be led by a priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and they would fill a golden pitcher with water. And then that water would be poured over the base of the altar as an expression of thanksgiving for God's provision and as a symbol of hope, of hope for the future, because God would continue to provide. Now, this festival was a big deal in this culture, and so the religious leaders knew that Jesus, as a, as a Jewish male, was, would be there. Right? They knew he was there, and so they were looking for him, uh, but Jesus had kind of been laying low and avoiding them. And then there are moments where he goes into the temple and he starts teaching, and they try to arrest him, but Jesus kind of slips away. There's kind of this cat and mouse game going on between Jesus and the religious people up until this moment at the festival. And so this is the context that we find ourselves in uh, in John chapter 7. So we're going to look at verses 37 to 39. Um, these are the verses we just heard Pastor Keith read. It says, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds. Now, notice, Jesus is not laying low anymore, right? He's standing up, he's shouting, he wants everyone to hear what he is about to say, even though he knows that it's going to put him into a risky situation. 
Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who's thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And then in verse 39, John makes a little note to clarify for us that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, God's living presence within us. So verse 39 says, when he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So Jesus stands up in this crowd of religious people who were doing all the right things. People were uh, going about these rituals. This, these were the only, uh, way, this was the only way they really knew how to relate to God, right? This, these were people who were religious, who were engaging in all the practices. They were doing all the right things. And he essentially says, I am the one that this whole thing is pointing to. I am your source. I am God's provision for you. I am your hope for the future. Everyone at this festival would have understood the symbolism. They would have understood the claim that Jesus was making here. And as the passage goes on, we see that there were people who believed in him, and there were people who were attached to their religion and who weren't open to Jesus' message. Verse 43 tells us that the crowd was divided. And so we have these two stories. In the first story, we hear about a woman who has everything stacked against her. She's a Samaritan. She's isolated. She's ashamed. She's gone through heartbreak after heartbreak. By all measures, in Jesus' time, she's somebody who would have been seen as being beyond the reach of God's grace. And Jesus looks at her, and he sees somebody with a thirsty soul. And he offers her living water. In the second story, we hear about a group of people who have everything going for them. They're God's chosen people. They're doing everything right. They're practicing the rituals. They're keeping the traditions. And Jesus looks around and he sees a bunch of people with thirsty souls. And he offers them his living water. As human beings, we were designed to live in communion with God, to live every moment in light of God's love. But ever since Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, there's been this fracture in our relationship with God. And as a result, there have been fractures in our relationships with each other and with the world and our relationship with ourselves. Things are not as they should be. And so we all have this thirst. We all have this thirst in our souls. St. Augustine said it well when he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And I don't know if you can remember a time when you were really, really thirsty. 
Here in the West, where we have constant access to clean drinking water, this isn't something we actually tend to experience all that often, that deep, excruciating sense of thirst, like would have been familiar to people actually in Jesus' time. One of the, the most memorable experiences I have of being really thirsty uh, took place a few years ago when I was out for a run. Now, if you've spent much time with me at all, you know that I am not a fan of being cold. Okay, not at all. It makes me very grumpy. I lose circulation to my extremities. It's not good. But I love the heat. Okay, I love to run in the heat. Like if you have the weather app on your phone and you open it up and there's a heat alert there, you drive down the 13th concession, you'll probably find me running. <laughs> and a few years ago, uh, I went out for a long run and it was hot. And I just had this little uh, small handheld bottle of water with me. Um, I don't like the hydration belts. I don't know if there's any runners here. The hydration belts, the backpacks, they, they like irritate me. So I just had this tiny little um, water, water bottle that I was carrying with my hand and I tried to ration it, but I was so thirsty. <laughs> and I ran out of water when I was probably still like six or seven kilometers from home. And I just remember getting to this point where I was just desperately looking around for any kind of fluid. And I was like fantasizing about consuming it. I would run by the orchards and I just like imagine myself tearing an apple off of the tree and sucking the juice out of it. When I ran by houses, I would like try to find their hose and I imagined myself going up and turning it on and taking a great big drink like I used to do when I was a little kid. Any pipes that I saw, I imagined like breaking them open and just drinking whatever fluid came out. I didn't even care what it was. When we get really thirsty, we will go to any lengths to satisfy that thirst. And there are all kinds of ways that we try to satisfy the thirst in our souls outside of Jesus. We try to quench our thirst in relationships and end up putting so much pressure on them that they collapse. We try to quench our thirst through success and achievement and end up spending our lives chasing a finish line that moves further and further away from us. We try to quench our thirst with new stuff, with wealth, but find that it's never enough. We always want more. We try to quench our thirst with food or alcohol or addiction, and we end up causing harm to our bodies and our relationships. We try to quench our thirst with religion but end up feeling like we never measure up. Or maybe even worse, we end up becoming proud and judgmental and push people away from Jesus. Sometimes we try to quench our thirst with things that actually harm us. When we had that uh, stomach flu outbreak here at the daycare a couple of weeks ago, one of the first things they did was check our water right, to make sure that there wasn't something in it that was making us sick. Other times, we try to quench our thirst with things that just will never satisfy it. Like, it would be like getting home from a run and just slamming back a box of soda crackers and expecting that somehow that's going to solve the thirst problem. Sometimes we get so used to the feeling of having a thirsty soul that we don't even notice it anymore. And we just kind of keep running on the treadmill of life without ever thinking about it. But here's the good news. There is another way. 
We don't have to get sucked into the frenetic pace of our culture that leaves us feeling exhausted and empty. We don't have to give into the cynicism and despair that are so rampant around us and suck the joy out of our lives. We don't have to spend our lives moving from one coping mechanism to another just to try to numb the ache that we feel inside. There is another way. The invitation that Jesus extended to the woman at the well and the invitation that he extended to the crowd of people at the festival of booths is the invitation that he extends to us today. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within, giving them eternal life. And when we come to Jesus and receive the living water that he offers us, what we find is that he is enough. That he's enough. In Christ, we can find rest for our weary souls. We can have peace that endures through the storms of our lives. In him, we can have hope that carries us through difficult situations and that opens our eyes to the ways that God's kingdom is breaking into the world around us. In him, we can have joy and freedom. By the power of God's spirit, we can overcome our selfishness and the habits and addictions that keep our worlds small and our hearts hard. And instead, we can live in gratitude and openness and wonder. By the power of his spirit, we can overcome our fear and our shame, and we can live the lives that God designed for us to live. In him, we can experience healing and wholeness and new life, real, eternal life. In him, we can live lives that are full and that are bubbling over with the love of God. And it doesn't end there. <coughs> Jesus says that those who come to him and drink will have rivers of living water that flow from their hearts. Or their guts is technically how it reads in the Greek. They'll have rivers of living water that flow from their innermost being. When we enter into the life that Jesus invites us into, we then become agents of hope and reconciliation in the world. We, we become people who spread his light and his love to others so that they can have their thirsty souls satisfied through Christ as well. And we'll never get this perfectly and we don't experience it fully on this side of heaven, but it's real. It's real, and this is an invitation that's available to us today. But here's the thing. It won't happen by accident. It takes intentionality. We need to, to clear some of the clutter out of our schedule so that we can tend to our souls we need to make space in our lives to come to Jesus and drink. The Jewish people had all kinds of traditions that kept drawing them back to the story that they were a part of, like the festival that we heard about today. There were seasons in their calendars when they did things differently, 
when they set time apart to engage in practices that reminded them who God was, that reminded them how he had provided for them, that reminded them of his goodness and his faithfulness. And there were celebrations that reminded them who they were, how they were called to live as God, God's people, as people who were dependent on this God. And well, I know that uh, we know that sometimes rituals can become um, empty and meaningless and that we don't need to follow traditions like this in order to make ourselves right with God. They can be really powerful, right? They can, it can be really powerful to set aside time during certain seasons to make some practical adjustments to how we're living in order to more fully focus on Jesus. And on Wednesday, we're entering the season of Lent. Depending on kind of what tradition you come from, Lent may or may not be something that you have a lot of experience with or familiarity with. But Lent is observed during the 40 days that lead up to Easter. And it commemorates the 40 days that Jesus spent fasting in the desert before he began uh, his ministry. And different traditions celebrate Lent differently, but it's rec recognized by many followers of Jesus as a time to set aside some luxuries and some distractions and to intentionally make space to focus on Jesus and to prepare our hearts to celebrate the most significant and world-changing event that ever took place in human history, in Jesus' death and resurrection. And as we prepare uh, for Lent, this is a great time to reflect on where we are trying to satisfy our thirst outside of Jesus. To reflect on what habits and addictions we've developed that are pulling us away from him. And then to make some practical adjustments to our daily routines that reorient our hearts to him. And maybe there's something that God's calling you to give up for this season, to make some room in your life so that you can tend to your soul. And we're going to take some time to reflect on that in a few minutes. And you can just ask God to reveal that to you. And here at Evergreen, we want to invite you to join us in focusing really intentionally on our prayer lives during this season. Not by doubling down and trying really hard to maximize the time that we are spending in prayer. Right? Prayer, time in prayer is important, but we want to go deeper than that. We're going to spend some time reflecting on the misconceptions about prayer that can get in the way of our ability to commune with God. And how we might be able to overcome those. And how we might be able to um, practice a kind of prayer that encompasses our whole selves and our whole lives. As Keith pointed out, um, you may notice that there are four posters hung up around the sanctuary. Last night, there were 12. <laughs> it's really hard to stick things to walls without destroying those walls. And so we're so thankful to Beth and to Ian, to Heather, who, who put them up. And we're going to get them up again uh, by next week, so we hope. Um, but these are images that are designed to help us reimagine what it could look like to have a rich and meaningful prayer life. It's artwork that's done by an artist named Scott Erickson. And we want to take this time to imagine what it could look like if we saw our entire lives as opportunities to connect with God and to be open to his love. So we have a resource that we're going to be sending out 
Um, each week, we'll send one out this afternoon through email um, with some images, some artwork, some scripture readings, some questions for reflection, some prayer. And uh, we would love for you to just join us in this season in really drawing close to God in a special way. Um, so yeah, so we would love uh, for you to take us up to, to take us up on this invitation. If you're the kind of person who does not like technology and you want to stop by the info hub, there are some printed copies that you can grab there. So this is just an opportunity. This is a, a beautiful season for us to come to Jesus and to take him up on his invitation to drink his living water. And I'm going to close this morning with, a, with uh, Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. And I'm going to read from the message. And then we're just going to take a little bit of time to reflect before moving back into worship through song. So Matthew 11, verse 28 says this. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Amen. May we be people who learn to live freely and lightly as we open ourselves up to God's perfect love and let it overflow to the people around us. So as we wrap up, I'm just going to invite you to take a few moments to center yourself in God's presence. We want to take some time to reflect on those questions that we, that we had talked about. About whether you've been uh, turning to something other than Jesus to quench the thirst in your soul. And in what practical changes God might be inviting you to make in this season to just draw closer to him. So let's pray and then we'll take some time to reflect. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for your provision. And God, we, we come before you and we recognize that so often we turn to other things to try to satisfy that thirst in our souls. So often we get distracted. We get so busy just going through our day-to-day -day lives that we ignore the thirst. Meanwhile, you invite us to draw close, to experience the fullness of life that you have for us. And God, we pray that you would open up each one of us to your love. Speak to us now. Show us what you're calling us into in the season ahead. That's so that we can be people who open ourselves up to your living water and who let it flow through us to others. In your name, amen. Amen. So I'm just going to invite you to take a moment in God's presence and to just reflect on this question. Where have you been trying to thirst the quench in your soul? What have you been turning to to try to satisfy the thirst in your soul? Just take time, take time to reflect on that to ask God to reveal that to you. Maybe there's a habit or a coping mechanism, or maybe you've been just trying to ignore the thirst and keep going with busyness.
And now what practical changes is God inviting you to make during the season of Lent to open yourself up to receive the living water that he provides? Just ask his spirit to speak to you about that now. we thank you that you are active and that you are moving in each one of our lives. Let us move forward in obedience to you and openness to what you want to do in us. 